0: Well, good morning again. As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Psalm 19? Psalm 19. For those of you who are visiting or maybe have been away for a while, we're spending this summer in the Psalms. It's that book right smack in the middle of your Bible that seems different than all the rest of them. The words are set differently on the page. Each chapter seems to be self-contained in a way that's different than Genesis and Romans. And that's true. It is a different book. The Psalms are the songbook of the people of God. And as we've seen in the past few weeks, the Psalms are not just God's words to us, but they are also the words that God has given us to speak back to him. They are prayers and songs that God has given us to sing and pray to Him. And this is so helpful and so important for us to know because how many of us have had the feeling where we get on our knees to pray or we close our eyes and start talking to God and we just don't know what to say? How often does something in your life happen and you are at a loss for words. You don't even know where to begin. This is why the Psalms are so helpful for us. Sin has not just made us do bad things, sin has fractured every part of us our minds, our hearts, our emotions, our wills. They have all become twisted or distorted by sin. None of them works as well as God intended them. To work. And what God is doing in salvation is putting us back together. He is correcting our twisted hearts and minds and wills and directing them back toward him. And so prayer is both a request. We are asking God to do something for us and in us, but it is also an action We all know how singing a song in worship isn't just an expression of how we feel in that moment, but it can actually shape and mold our feelings and our hearts as we sing it. Jack Collins is the man who wrote the introduction and the notes for Psalms in the ESV Study Bible, and he captures this so well in his introduction to the Psalms. He says, The Psalms do not simply express emotions. When sung in faith, they actually shape the emotions of the godly. The psalms, as songs, act deeply on the emotions for the good of God's people. It is not natural to trust in God in hardship. And yet the psalms provide a way of doing just that and enable the singers to trust better as a result of singing them. As an example, a person staring at the starry night sky might not know quite what to do with the mixed fear and wonder he finds in himself. And singing Psalm 8 will enrich his ability to respond. The Psalms present us with God-given responses to God. This is what God calls you to in the midst of hardship. This is what God calls you to in the midst of rejoicing or a fear or anger. And he doesn't simply give us directions. He gives us the words to say. This is why we are called not just to study, but to sing and pray the Psalms. And the Psalm that we're going to look at today gives us a perfect example of a time when we need words that we don't have on our own. Psalm 19 is a song of rejoicing in the law of the Lord. How many of us do that naturally? How many of us praise God for the rules and commands he has given us? The reason we don't do that is not because God's law isn't praiseworthy. As we'll see today, God's law is good. But our minds and our hearts are dulled to the beauty and wonder of God's law. We have done this silly thing where we have separated three things. We've separated God's commands... We've separated God's love for us, and we've separated our joy. We don't think that those three things fit together. That's because we don't listen when Jesus speaks. Jesus says to us in John 15, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. Jesus tells us that his commandments and his love for us and our joy are all intertwined together. So today, the Lord is going to give us words to say, words to sing and pray to him, praising him for the goodness and the beauty and the worth of his law. Psalm 19 comes to us. In three parts. It begins in verses 1 to 6 with David wondering at the heavens and the sky above and how they reveal the glory of God to him. Then in verses 7 to 11, he turns to the more full revelation God has given us in his law. And then in the final verses 12 to 14, he turns to God and prays that God would keep him from sin by his law and by his power. This is what the Lord has given us to sing and pray to him. But before we hear from his word, we need to ask for his help. Would you all go to, me with, go to the Father with me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry now for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today with the true bread from heaven, your Son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, cause us to long for Christ, to trust in him, and to follow him in true obedience as we now hear your holy word. Amen. This is Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. As we look through this psalm together, we're going to see it in those three parts. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 6 what David says when he looks to the heavens. Then we're going to spend most of our time in verses 7 through 11 looking at the law of the Lord. First, we're going to see that God's law is a revelation of God to us. And then secondly, we're going to see that God's law is for those who are forgiven by Jesus. And then at the very end, we'll look at verses 12 to 14 seeing what David says about his own heart And about our hearts. This psalm, like many, begins with a title. And we know that only a few of the psalms in their title contain the circumstances in which they were written. This one doesn't. It gives directions for how to use it, says it to the choir master, and then it tells us who wrote it a psalm of David. But even though there isn't a circumstance in the title, David immediately gives us the general circumstances of this psalm. Because he starts by talking about what happens when we look up at the sky. And I say what happens because David tells us that something is happening to us when we stare into the sky. Pay attention to the verbs as I read verses 1 through 4. He doesn't portray the world around us as a dumb object, but as a living, breathing, breathing, even speaking agent of God. Verses 1 to 4 say, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Notice all those verbs. The heavens declare. The sky proclaims, day-to-day pours out speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. They're communicating something. The psalm uses the word reveal. The stars and the sun and the moon and the sky are revealing something to us. What are they revealing to us? They're telling us about the glory of God. They're proclaiming, shouting his handiwork to us. That word translated handiwork is a word that is sometimes translated construction. This is what God has put together, what he has constructed, what he has wrought. We see this even with man-made works of art and architecture and construction. They tell us something about the one who made them. And all these things that we look up and see tell us that God is glorious. He is amazing. He is astounding, magnificent, wonderful, marvelous. Our vocabulary runs out of words to describe how awesome God is. And this was David looking up at the sky with nothing but his bare eyes. No instruments. Think of what we can see now. Have you ever looked Online at the photos from the Hubble Space Telescope. If you search that on the internet, it will take you to the NASA website, and you can look at thousands of pictures that it has captured from space. The more detail you see, the more stunning and spectacular it is. The rings around Saturn, the crab nebula, the constellations and black holes and shooting stars, Who made all these things? God did. Every one of them is a reflection, a witness to the glory and beauty and wisdom of God. When you walk outside and look up, whether you have a telescope or nothing but your bare eyes, David says that you should open your ears. Because what you see is telling you that God is amazing. John Stott says that David tells us three things about the revelation that God gives us in the creation around us. First, it's continuous. David says it is day to day and night to night. It's not like a shooting star, that if you blink or don't look right away, you're going to miss it. There is never a moment that creation doesn't bear witness to God's glory. Second, it is abundant. Verse 2 says day to day, pours out speech. It's not a little bit of speech. It's an abundance of speech. No matter where you look, you are face to face with the glory of God. And then third, it is universal. Verse 3 says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. There is no creation or there is no language barrier for creation's witness. No people group is exempt to hearing about God from creation. No culture misses out. Every single person in the world hears this message whenever they open their eyes. God is glorious. Creation's witness is continuous, it is abundant, and it is universal. This witness is what we often call God's general revelation. God has revealed himself to everyone. That's where the word general comes from. Everyone in creation. Psalm 19 isn't isn't the only place where we hear about this. Paul says it again in Romans chapter 1. Talking about the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You look and you know that God is God. That God is glorious and beautiful and wise. Creation is yelling it at you. David takes the sun as a particular example of the creation bearing witness to God. He uses poetic language, but it's poetry with a purpose. In verse 4, he begins, In them, that's in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun is a picture for us of God's revelation of himself. It isn't stagnant and kind of apathetic. No, it comes out ready to pursue you. It pursues you with joy from one end of the world to the other, like a marathoner relentlessly running after you. You are here this morning, and you think that God has abandoned you. You think He doesn't care if you know anything about Him. David tells you to open your eyes. Look at the sky. Look at the sun relentlessly showing up every day and taking its course from beginning to end. That is the way that God pursues you in this world with His revelation. There is nowhere you can go to escape God's witness to himself. Just as the heat of the sun touches everything in this world, so the voice of God's creation shouts his glory everywhere. Question is, are you listening to him? But David doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop by telling us that we can see God's glory by looking around at the world. Just As Paul recognizes in Romans 1, so David recognizes here that general revelation isn't enough. We learn about God from the sky above, but we also know that we don't acknowledge and respond to God like we should. Paul says this in Romans 1, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the absurdity of humanity. We look up, and the sun and the moon and the stars are screaming about how amazing their creator is. And what do we do? We worship them. We praise them for their dim, reflected glory instead of praising the God they are pointing to. We do this with all of creation. The stars and sun, the animals, and more than anything, ourselves. We look at people created in the image of God and we worship and praise the dim reflection of God instead of the God we are reflecting. This is what we said earlier about our broken and sinful natures. We react wrongly. When we see the glory of God in creation, instead of praising him, we praise creation. Sin has warped and twisted our hearts. We don't know how to respond or how to live. And so David, in verses 7 through 11, turns from general revelation to the special revelation of God, In his word, he begins talking about and praising the law of the Lord. Read verses 7 through 11 with me again. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. Now you may have heard all of that and thought, What? I was with David for those first six verses. I look around at the beauty of creation and I am amazed by God. I'm with David. I'm in awe of the glory of God. But how does he go from that to praising the rules that God has given us? What do these two things have to do with each other? The key connection between those two things is revelation. God has revealed himself to us. That's what David kept saying in verses 1 to 6. The sky and the heavens pour out speech. They tell us about God. But if you pay attention to what David said there, and even to what Paul says in Romans 1, the creation around us doesn't tell us all that much about God. It tells us that God exists. It tells us that God is glorious and beautiful and powerful because we see the works of his hands. And Paul adds that it tells us that we ought to worship God. That is not very much. Creation reveals God, but it reveals him dimly. So what does David turn to? He turns to God's word. The word law is talking about God's commandments, but more generally it's talking about his instruction, his teaching, his words to his people. David rejoices that God has spoken. He hasn't just given us a vague impression of him. He has given us crystal clear speech, which he spoke to his people and which is now written down in Scripture. With words, God tells us specifically about his character. He's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God uses words to tell his promises to his people. He comes to Abraham and says to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. We heard his promise in his words this morning in the assurance of pardon from Psalm 103. The Lord does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You cannot find those things out by looking up at the sky. God doesn't declare His character and His covenant and His forgiveness in the sun and the moon, but in His Word. This is what David begins rejoicing in. He rejoices that God has made Himself known to us in detail. He is not a silent God, but a God who speaks loud and clear to His people In his word. And the speech that David especially praises God for here is his law. The word translated law can generally mean instruction, but all the parallel phrases in Psalm 19 make it clear that David is talking about God's commandments law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules. And we hear that, and again, we think, what? Why is David happy that God has told him about his rules? One of the reasons why this is confusing to us is because we don't realize that God's law is revelation. We think that God is making things up when he gives us his commands. But David realizes that God is revealing the truth to us in his law. We tend to think of God's law like a speed limit. It's not completely arbitrary, maybe, but somebody did just come up with it at some point because they thought it was a good idea. That's how we think of God's law. But God's law is much more like the law of gravity than like a speed limit. In 1665, when Isaac Newton discovered gravity, he didn't make it up. It's not as if we all were allowed to fly before that, but once he explained gravity, all the fun was over. No, he didn't make up gravity. He discovered it. It had always been a part of the fabric of the world, and he made known to us how it works. That's what God's moral law is like. It isn't arbitrary or random. God is telling us about the world that he created and how he made it to work. God's law reveals things to us about His character and about the nature of humanity, how He made you to work, and about how relationships with other people work. Do not commit adultery, and do not lie, and do not murder. Don't take good things and make them taboo. They reveal the way that God created the world to work. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Honor your father and your mother. These reveal to us how life is to be lived to its fullest. Sin isn't just wrong. It is bad and harmful to us. And righteous living isn't just correct. It's good. This is what David rejoices in. God's law is good. David uses all these words to describe God's law. Look with me at verses 7 through 11 to see them. He says that it is perfect or blameless. It's sure or trustworthy. God's precepts are right, which means they conform exactly to the inherent laws of the world. He calls his commandments pure, they don't have any flaws or errors in them. The next one's interesting. He says, the fear of the Lord, which throughout the Bible is used to describe true heartfelt love for God and worship of God. The fear of the Lord is clean. Just as guilt and deception make us feel dirty, when we walk in God's ways, we feel clean before him and before others. And then lastly, his rules are true. David adds two more descriptions at the end of These last two. God's law endures forever and it is altogether righteous. All of these are David's descriptions of God's law. But what I want you to see is how personal David views God's law. Remember, this passage assumes that we are sinful, it is written on this side of the fall. David knows that our hearts and minds and actions are distorted. Look what he says about the benefit of God's law to sinners like you and me. Look at them beginning in verse 7. He says, God's law revives the soul. Sin sucks the life out of us. But living righteously brings about a renewal of life and vitality. It makes wise the simple. The simple are those who are ignorant and don't know how life is to be lived. God's law gives us wisdom for how to live life in this world. His law rejoices the heart. Sin promises pleasure, but brings misery. As we read from Jesus earlier, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God's law enlightens the eyes. This again shows that those without God's law are lost and don't know how to live. But God's law brings light to those groping about in the darkness. In verse 10, he makes these two amazing comparisons. That God's law is more to be desired than gold. And it is sweeter than honey. And then he gives one more effect of God's law in verse 11. First, a negative one. By them is your servant. That's David, but also all who follow him. By, him is your, by them is your servant warned. And then a positive effect. In keeping them, there is great reward. God's law steers us away from sin, which is the path of death. They are a warning to stay away from wickedness and life-sucking evil. And they direct us toward the paths of life. Is this your response to God's law? Do you read through Leviticus and rejoice that God has revealed how you are to live life? Are you able to say that God's ways are more to be desired than gold? And that they aren't just objectively valuable, but that they are sweet. Sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. And again, we can hear that and think, that's fine that David feels that way but I must be missing something. Isn't the law bad? Isn't the whole point of the New Testament that we are no longer under law, but under grace? How can a Christian praise God for the law when we know that we can't keep it? And that is a good question. It's a question that many, many books have been written to help answer. And there are a lot of important things to say to help answer that question, But right now, I just want to follow one thread through Scripture. Throughout the entire Bible, God makes clear again and again that there is nothing wrong with His law. His law is good. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5 at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us with no reservations that the law of God is good. The thing that is wrong with the law is not the law itself, but how we relate to the law. Our sinful temptation is to take the gift of the law and to use it as a way to make ourselves right with God. We know that we've sinned, and so we say, I've got a good idea. I'll do better. I'll live so good that God will have to accept me. And so we use the law as a way to justify ourselves before God. The word that we use for this is legalism, relating to God on the basis of our ability to keep his law. But that's not how God teaches us to relate to him. On this side of the fall, God doesn't give us his law as the basis of our relationship with him. He knows that we are sinners. We have rebelled against him and broken his laws. And so God comes to us to forgive us and to enter into a gracious covenant relationship with us. And it's from that position of forgiveness and unearned love that he leads us to his law as the path of life. God comes near to us and then he brings us to his law as the path of life. What we do in legalism is we pull the law back to stand between us and God. We demand that our obedience to the law be the basis of our relationship instead of the result of our relationship. In the gospel, God stands between us and the law. In legalism, we put the law back between us and God. But I want you to notice what David does in this passage. What does he call the law? He calls it the law of the Lord. It's God's law. And it's not just God in general. He uses the personal covenant name of God over and over again. Ryan mentioned this last week. When you look in your Bible and you see whether it's the ESV or the NIV or the NASB, when you see in the Old Testament a capital L followed by O-R-D in lower, ca- or in lower caps, that is a stand-in for God's personal name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The name Yahweh, or what previous generations called Jehovah, that is the name that God gives to those he is in covenant relationship with. Look at how many times David uses it. Every time he mentions the law or some parallel word to the law, he makes blatant that it is the law of Yahweh. They're the commands of our covenant God. They are not hoops to jump through to get God to like you. These are the gifts that our covenant God has given to forgiven sinners, to show them the path of life. Sinclair Ferguson, in his wonderful book on the law, The Whole Christ, gives the insight that both legalism which is making our obedience the relationship or the basis of our relationship with God and a big word antinomianism which throws the law out completely saying that it has no place in the Christian life both of those two things are at their root the same thing they separate the law from the God who gave it as he likes to say they separate the law of the lord From the Lord of the law. They rip the two apart rather than presenting them as they came to us, joined together. The gospel holds those two things together. Jesus Christ didn't come to give you hoops to jump through, He came to save you from the sins that you could never save yourself from. He doesn't demand obedience for salvation, He demands trust in Him. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. These are not good people. These are people wearied by their own sin. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is the same Jesus who says to the same broken people, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is where David turns in the end. He isn't using the law to earn God's favor. He comes to God as every Christian comes to God, with an awareness of his sin and his need for God. Read verses 12 to 14 with me. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. And innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David has no illusion that he can avoid sin or overcome his sin on his own. Instead, he asks God to protect him from his sin. He calls the Lord his rock and his redeemer. God is our redeemer by saving us from the consequences of our sin. This is what Jesus came to do, to save his people from their sin. He became a curse for us. He became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whenever we come to Jesus, we don't come haughty and proud of our goodness. We come low and humble because he was crushed for our sins. By His wounds, we are healed. But Jesus is not just our Redeemer. He is our rock, our strength. He doesn't just free us from the punishment of sin, but also from the power of sin. He makes us into new creations. 1 Peter 2.24 sums up this dual picture of what Christ does so well. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is only in Jesus that the law becomes sweeter than honey to us again. He stands between us and the law. He takes the punishment of our sins so that we might enter into the joy of a renewed life. That is why David can rejoice in God's law. That is why we can rejoice in God's law. Jesus is both our forgiveness and our strength our rock, and our redeemer. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you that the law and our sin do not hang over us in condemnation. Because of Jesus, they are transformed into a rule of life and the path of life set before us. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of Jesus We pray that we would walk as he has called us to walk, following him on the path to life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.